Hello everyone and welcome to this creative way of presenting crossways. We of course are under um, a situation where we have closed down many of the programs during the week because of the uh, COVID-19 virus. And so Crossways isn't beating this week and we're not sure about subsequent weeks. So we're going to try to do this, uh, do something over the um, internet and through your website to see if I can keep us going with the uh, program year a little bit. Tonight we have Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. So we'll give it a try. So let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll get to our lesson. Take care. Gracious God, we thank you and give you praise for the privilege we have of studying your holy word. I'm going to start over. Okay. Danielle, start it right about now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this creative way of presenting crossways. We've never done this before to teach crossways using a camera and sending the lesson to you in your homes. But because of the shutdown of the church, uh, at least a number of our programs, because of the COVID-19 virus, we thought we would give this a try. It's an experiment, and we're very open to your feedback. Does this work? Does this not work? What might you need to make it a more effective tool for keeping us on schedule with our Crossways lessons? Um, as you may know, we are scheduled today, the 4th of March, to study Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Also, a bit of review of Jeremiah. So, again, here we go. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we praise you and give you thanks for the privilege we have of studying your holy word as it comes to us through the centuries. We thank you for these fairly obscure books, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, books that we probably haven't read too often before, and yet they are filled with meaning and purpose and lessons for us in our century. Be with us as we study um, in our separate homes, as we are connected with this electronic medium, and we pray that it would be effective for us. In your holy and gracious name we pray. Amen. Our thoughts and prayers also go out to all those affected by the COVID-19 virus. Uh, we are being uh, very cautious in how we um, present our programs here at the church. Um, so we're trying to be proactive in helping contain this virus. We're not so frightened by the possibility of getting the virus ourselves. And even if many of us do, 80% um, of the infections are minor and uh, mild cases. But what we are really trying to do is prevent the virus from expanding to the point where more and more of the vulnerable population is being are being affected. So those people who are in the one to two percent minority who have underlying health conditions, we want to help prevent the virus from reaching them. And if we can be proactive in not spreading the virus, that's our goal. Hence, we close down some of the programs at the church. Hence, we have uh, crossways taught through <laughs> this electronic medium. So in preparation, uh, we've got the uh, projector here and we have the slides from previous weeks. You may remember the last time we were together, we studied the book of Jeremiah. And I'd like to do a bit of a review so that we get up to speed to study Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. So a few transparencies. First of all, uh, here is a map 
of the ancient world, the Near East. And as you can see, we have Israel is over here, the Arabian Desert here, Mesopotamia here. As you know, uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were very strong in the 8th century. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah all spoke when the northern kingdom here was conquered by Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. 721, this northern kingdom was destroyed. We now are a little bit later in history. The Babylonians, who developed around this city of Babylon, which is near Baghdad in Iraq today, this empire conquered Nineveh. And then they came down, just like Assyrians had earlier done, and now the Babylonians are threatening Jerusalem. So it's in this historical context that these books of the Bible are being uh, written and recorded. Here's our timeline, which will help you understand where we are in history. Um, hopefully you'll remember this timeline. We go back in history to Saul, David, and Solomon, these three kings who ruled for about 100 years in total together, um, right around 1000 BC. The kingdom splits apart here into the yellow line, which is the southern kingdom of Judah. The yellow line representing people who are descendants of David. Remember the promise God made to David, someone of your line would rule forever. The right-hand line here of kings is broken into different colors because each color represents a different dynasty. So that begins in 922, the kingdom breaks apart for 200 years. Down to 721, the northern 10 tribes are ruled by these series of kings. You remember Amos Hosea spoke to the northern kingdom. Isaiah Micah spoke to the southern kingdom while the Assyrians were coming down and threatening the northern kingdom. So this period right here, the Assyrian Empire is coming down. We're down here now, 150 years later, where the Babylonian Empire has risen in power, and the Babylonians are threatening Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. Jeremiah is right here. You can see his dates, 626 to 582. 686, 582. Many, many years. He started as a very young man. Today we're going to study Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Those three. They're very short, um, but they're a good interlude between talking about um, the Babylonians coming down and conquering and Ezekiel, who will actually go into captivity. Once the southern kingdom is destroyed, the prophet Ezekiel will be taken as a captive into Babylon uh, and be there with the exiles. So right now, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and a quick review of Jeremiah. Here's another transparency that shows these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, or excuse me, the um, empire of the Assyrians based in Nineveh comes down and conquers the northern kingdom. Babylon, the empire that destroyed Nineveh and the Assyrians, come down in the 500s and conquer Jerusalem in 587. This is a transparency that speaks about Jeremiah, uh, or excuse me, of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah the prophet spoke at a time um, back when the Assyrians are threatening Jerusalem. Again, this is Isaiah the prophet, not Jeremiah. And I bring this up because Isaiah said that Jerusalem would not fall. 
Isaiah also introduces the idea of a messianic age, a time of peace and tranquility that God will bring. These are interesting themes because Jeremiah says the opposite about Jerusalem. Isaiah said that Jerusalem would not fall to the Assyrians, but Jeremiah said Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. So we have different messages coming from these two prophets about Jerusalem. The Messianic Age, very important for us, and we'll be considering that in, um, as part of this lecture. Just a quick review of Jeremiah before we turn to Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Jeremiah's review. Jeremiah's excuse at his call. What was his excuse? He said he was too young. I'm only a boy. Was he an upper or lower class person? Do you remember? I'm not sure myself. So um, if Nathan was here, he could help me uh, with that one. I think he was lower class, but I don't remember for sure. Was he a supporter of Jerusalem's priests? No, he was not. Oh, that reminds me. Jeremiah was of the upper class. He was a descendant of a line of priests that was sent out of Jerusalem in a power struggle. And so he was against Jerusalem's priests. Number four, what kings ruled during his ministry? Well, the last uh, four kings of Judah, including Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Why was he considered a traitor? Remember I just said that Jeremiah predicted that Jerusalem would fall, would be conquered by the Babylonians, and that was good for Jerusalem? Now, if you say that you know, in Jerusalem, when it's surrounded by Babylonians, that's not thought of very highly. So he's considered a traitor. He was thrown in that well, if you remember. How is his message different from Isaiah? I just mentioned that about Jerusalem. Name a symbolic action in his preaching. He is one who used lots of symbolic actions, including um, the one with the uh, vase that he created, and he threw it to the ground, and the vase cracked apart, and he said that's what's going to happen to Judah. What are Jeremiah's confessions? Jeremiah, of all the prophets, shares his innermost feelings, his pain, his sorrow, his lament. And so he shares that throughout his book and also in the book of Lamentations, the laments of Jeremiah. Where do you find, I will make a new covenant with Israel and Judah? He will write it upon their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 31. What year did Jerusalem fall? That is to the Babylonians, 587, 587. What country, con country conquered Judah? Babylon, as we talked about. Where did Jeremiah go after the fall? Well, he ended up in Egypt, so he had to flee um, the destruction that was going on in Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed, the walls were knocked down, and so he left and went to um, Egypt. So those are some things about uh, Jeremiah. Here's the transparency for Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Remember, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk are writing at the same historical period as Jeremiah. The Babylonians are coming down onto Jerusalem and everybody's frightened and anxious and different prophets are speaking. Jeremiah um, is one, but there are other prophets who are speaking to the people as well. Just like we have many different churches, many different pastors, many different politicians out there speaking about things in the world. Same back here in this period of history in the um, 500s BC. 
So this panel, there's three panels here. The first one is a picture of Zephaniah's book. So Zephaniah talks about how um, the Babylonians are going to be coming into Jerusalem. See the skyline here? And they're going to be coming with torches and sword. And they're going to search out the people to destroy Jerusalem. So Zephaniah predicts the downfall of Jerusalem as well. This one, this transparency right here is to represent Nahum. And if you can see, there's a lion here with what looks like a pane of glass that is broken. The lion represents the city of Nineveh. So Nahum is written a little bit earlier in history at a time when the Babylonians have risen in power and they're fighting against the Assyrians. In the year 612, the Babylonians completely destroy the capital city of the Assyrians, Nineveh. They so totally destroy the city that it wasn't rediscovered. The ruins were not rediscovered until 1834. This final panel here is a man with a question mark on his forehead with an eagle. The eagle symbolizes Babylon and that empire. Jerusalem, or excuse me, right here you have the um, representation of the city of Babylon itself. They have a ziggurat or a, a pyramid here. This is the gate of the city. Habakkuk asks the question, why, God, do you use such bad people like the Babylonians to accomplish your purposes? Remember, so far, most of the prophets have been operating under the theology of the Deuteronomist. And part of the theology of the Deuteronomist was that if you follow God's law, if you have right relationship with God, if, 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 then God will bless you. It's a if-then kind of thing. If you follow the rules, God will bless you. If you break the rules, break the covenant, God will curse you. It's an even transaction. So Habakkuk is challenging that theodicy, and we'll talk about it later, that is it true, God, that you use bad people to do good things? Is that appropriate? Is that right? I disagree with that. I disagree with even the theodicy or the theory of evil that Deuteronomy dealt with. Is it always true that those who do the right thing are blessed and those who do the wrong thing are cursed? I'm not sure that's true, Habakkuk said. It's the first time in the Bible that we have a prophet or a writer who challenges a basic theology, the basic theology of theodicy coming from the Deuteronomist. So we're going to go back now and we're going to study, first of all, Zephaniah. And then we'll get all the way back to Habakkuk um, towards the end. So let's go back to Zephaniah. And if you could find Zephaniah in your um, Bibles, it's towards the back, one of the, quote, minor prophets, uh, those 12 prophets who wrote smaller books. They're not minor in the sense of importance. They're very important books, very profound books, but they're just shorter. The major prophets are longer books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Those books are long. These are short. So if you can find your way to Zephaniah, we'll get started. My book is page 1402. That may not be the same in your Bible. So first of all, Zephaniah, possibly of royal descent. He seems to write in a very elegant fashion. Um, he is writing in three basic ways. The first thing, he's going to predict the doom of Jerusalem and the day of the Lord is coming. He also predicts doom and gloom for other countries, 
but he also has embedded in his book a sense of God coming to claim a remnant of people to rebuild the world. So the real big offering that Zephaniah brings to our study is that he focuses on a remnant. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we get to it in the text. So we're here in the text. Let's read a little bit here. Um, chapter 1, let's uh, begin at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah. Hezekiah was a king. Was he the son of a king? We're not sure. But this is the way to date this book, and so we're in the year around mm, 620s or so. Remember, Jerusalem is conquered in 587, so this is... 20, 30, year, or 30, 40 years before that. Verse 2, this is God speaking. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. Sounds like the flood here. Down to verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, we're talking the southern kingdom now. The northern kingdom destroyed in 721 and now in 620s, He's predicting the fall of Jerusalem. That doesn't happen until 587. Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Time and time again, this prophet Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord. Amos the prophet introduced the day of the Lord as a day of, of calamity, a day of judgment. And now Zephaniah has picked up on that. Verse 8, he says, day of the Lord. Verse 9 day of the Lord. Verse 10, on that day, and it's continuing. Um, verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and will punish the people. Hence the drawing um, of the panel with this torch or lamp as uh, Babylon comes into the city, but it's God who is doing the searching out. Um, over to verse chapter 2. A call to repentance. Gather together, gather, O shameless nation, before you are driven away like the drifting chaff, before there comes upon you the fierce anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the Lord. There's that phrase again, day of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you, all you humble of the land, who do his commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's wrath. And it goes on from there and describes destruction around. So it's an invitation to repentance and the wrath, the day of the Lord, is still coming. Let's take a look at verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. It goes on from there over in verse 9, towards the end of verse 9. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. That's other nations around. A number of times remnant is talked about. If we go all the way over to chapter 3, verse 13, there is another reference to remnant. Now, again, back to chapter 3. Let's go to verse 9. And this is basically the purpose for the destruction of Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem, quote, needs to be destroyed 
according to the theodicy or the theology of the Deuteronomist. Remember, you do the right thing, you get blessed. You do the wrong thing, you get cursed. Now that the Babylonians are coming down and threatening Jerusalem, the way of interpreting that historical event is to say, well, we must have done something wrong. So we should repent and turn back to the Lord, and then we will be blessed. Here, the author is saying, a remnant will be blessed, not the entire nation. The entire nation needs to be disciplined. And obviously it's happening, because that's how they're interpreting this political destruction. Um, I don't know if I would interpret it that way, but that's how um, they did it when they were um, surrounded and steeped in the theodicy of the Deuteronomist. So, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. At that time, I will change the speech of my peoples to a pure speech, that all of them shall call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Down to verse 12. For I will leave in the midst of you a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. Chapter 3. Verse 12, a remnant will be saved, and they will be people of pure speech. Verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, once that remnant has been restored, this is what it's going to look like. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home at the time when I gather you. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So a quick overview of Zephaniah, who at the beginning of the book talks about destruction of Jerusalem. The Babylonians are coming down, destroying the land. Why are they doing that? Why are we having such bad luck as a community, even though God has promised to give us the land? It's because we have not followed the covenant. That's according to the Deuteronomist and this prophet Zephaniah. But God is still faithful. God will still claim a remnant out, out of the destruction and rebuild the world from that remnant or those chosen. So just as a bit of an aside, different theologies have different consequences. The Deuteronomist theology about suffering and evil, you're blessed if you do good things, you're cursed. If you do bad things, very simple theology. It, it leads to many different ways of thinking. If you get cancer, a bad thing happens to you, it must somehow be your fault. If you don't have a job and you live in this theodicy of the Deuteronomist, or your society does, then not having a job means you've done something wrong. It's not the society or the circumstances or something else. It's directly related. You can see how the theodicy of the Deuteronomist can be challenged. And Habakkuk will exactly do that, and we will also do that. You can also take a look at Zephaniah and look at his focus on a remnant being saved and the world being rebuilt through that remnant. It's a wonderful message out of the small and insignificant, the community grows and life is made good again. And we love that message. It's very Christian, actually. But still, if you interpret it incorrectly 
and you think of yourself as the remnant and all the others as the ones who should be punished, well, you can see the danger of that. And many groups of people have really focused on that way of interpreting who they are. We're the righteous ones. We're the people of pure speech. We're the ones who interpret God correctly. We're the remnant. And the others out there are worthy of destruction. You can see cults, Christian cults like that, developing all the time. And it's something for us to be aware of too. A, a theology that was meant to inspire and encourage people after a time of destruction can be twisted and um, taken incorrectly. So that's the book of Zephaniah. Um, leaves us with some big thoughts. Um, so it also sends us on to Nahum. So Nahum uh, comes a little bit before Zephaniah, before Habakkuk. Just go back um, to Nahum. It's a very, very short um, book, only like three chapters. And it is totally about the destruction of Nineveh. I have a, a slide here that I'll share with you. I've written on this slide the word Nineveh 612 under the word Nahum. So Nahum is a prophet who wrote about the destruction of Nineveh. Remember how Nineveh had basically, I said they were the Nazis of the ancient world. They were awful, terrible, cruel, um, um, selfish people. And that God now has punished them in 612 when the Babylonians destroy their uh, community, their city. And it feels like Nahum may have actually been there because his descriptions of destruction and battle are very profound. Let's read a little bit um, of it. So chapter 1, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they, that means the Assyrians, are full of strength and many, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you, that is the Assyrians, uh, excuse me, I will afflict you, that is Israel, no more. And now I will break off his yoke, the Assyrian yoke, from you and snap the bonds that bind you. Chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to this. It, I mean, you can just imagine an ancient battle scene when you hear these words. Chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of his warriors are red. His soldiers are clothed in crimson. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day when he musters them. The chargers prance. You can almost hear the horses. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the square. Their appearance is like torches. They dart like lightning. He calls his officers. They stumble as they come forward. They hasten to the wall and the mantle is set up. The river gates are open. The palace trembles. It goes on from there. Again, it feels like Nahum was there. Chapter 3, verse 1. Ah, or woe, city of bloodshed. That's Nineveh. The city is Nineveh. Utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, piles of dead, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and it goes on from there. So it, it's the kind of book that almost <clears throat> relishes the destruction of Nineveh. Um, the very book, if you remember, or the very city, if you remember, that Jonah is called upon to save which never actually happened. 
the Assyrians never repented. They ended up being destroyed. So that's the book of Nahum. We're only spending a short time on that. Um, the redeeming qualities of Nahum are, in my mind, suspect. So, one of my favorite books of the entire Bible is the book of Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk is courageous enough to challenge the long-standing and um, powerful theology introduced by the Deuteronomist. Remember that theology? You're blessed if you do the right thing. You're cursed if you do the, the wrong thing. And that God will bring punishment upon those who do the wrong thing. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians are God's way of punishing Israel and Judah for doing the wrong thing, breaking covenant. Habakkuk says, I don't get it, God. How can you use and work through bad things to accomplish good purposes? It's the same kind of question that you would ask of someone who is at a memorial service for a child who's been killed by a drunk driver and says to the grieving parents, well, God had a plan. God had a higher purpose. God will do something that will redeem this moment. That's really hard for the parents to hear. And the parents would be Habakkuk, asking the question, what kind of God would use such evil to accomplish things that are good? That's why I like Habakkuk. He challenges that theology. So let's read a little bit of Habakkuk. Um, again, we're right with the Babylonians, are getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Bad things are happening. Chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen. Well, just listen to that. None of the other prophets start like that. They start with, and God said, and God proclaimed, and God predicts. Here we have the prophet questioning God. And again, I'll read it. Chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen. Or cry to you violence, that is the violence of Assyria, the violence of Babylon. Cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore judgment, come, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. Now, those questions can be translated to almost any period in history, including our own. Why do people who are abusive or who manipulate end up in power? Why do these bad things happen in a world that should be justice and good. He asked God these questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do you, God, use bad things to affect people? Now, the Lord now responds to that question and says this. This is the Lord speaking. Look at the nations and see. I wonder what tone of voice God has here. Pleading? A little bit angry? A little sharp? Look at the nations and see, be astonished and be astounded, for a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Is he frustrated? Or she? How we understand the Lord? For I am rousing the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that's another name for the Babylonians, 
that fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Dread and fearsome are they. Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Down to verse 9. They all come for violence. They're with faces pressing forward. It goes on from there and um, all the way to verse 11. So the author is having God say the Deuteronomist line. The Deuteronomist, the theodicy is that God's going to work through the Babylonians to punish the covenant-breaking people of Judah. And Judah, or excuse me, and Habakkuk is not going to be satisfied with God's answer. That is the theodicy of the Deuteronomist. Remember, this is the theodicy prevalent in the day. So the author has placed in the mouth of God the prevalent and persistent and pervasive theology. Now Habakkuk questions again, verse 12. Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die, O Lord. You have marked them for judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like he's reminding God of how good God is, that you certainly can't see evil. You're certainly too pure even to notice evil. Verse 13 again. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous? and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than themselves. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And it goes on from there. The point being here, all the way through chapter 2, verse 1, is that Habakkuk responds to not God, but the theodicy of Deuteronomy which says God is going to work through evil to accomplish good. And Habakkuk says, God is too good for that. God is too good to work with evil to accomplish good. It's a challenge to the theodicy of the Deuteronomist. Now, of course, we've got God responding, and God responds in chapter 2, verse 2. For the next four verses, here we go. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that a runner may read it. A runner who is someone who is like um, the Pony Express, uh, bringing um, the letters to different places. Verse 3. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. It seems to tarry. Tarry meaning that it's not coming very fast. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. I'll stop right there and try and emphasize that here, the author has placed in God's mouth basically an expansion, a deeper seriousness with Habakkuk's question. Remember, Habakkuk has challenged the theodicy. Those who are, are uh, blessed must have done the right thing, those who are cursed must have done the wrong thing, and that God will curse and God will discipline and God will crush those who break covenant with God. And now we have um, God speaking, saying, be patient. I am bringing a new thing. I am going to bring goodness. 
Please trust me on that. Just have faith. That's where we end this little dialogue. We're going to have another dialogue, and it's going to get even deeper. But before that, verse 6 and following is from a different speech. Um, these are a series of what we call woe speeches. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are greedy. Woe to you who are cruel. Woe to you who are idolaters. So it's the typical um, theodicy of the prophets. Those of you who do these bad things are condemned. So what I want, really want to do is get over to chapter 3 and read a little bit here. The prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I sta stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. God came from Teman, and it goes on from there, and he talks about how God is good and great and has created a wonderful world. Um, and then finally, over in chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and no fruit is on the vines. I'm going to set this up for us. Remember, Habakkuk is watching the destruction of his nation. He is surrounded by terrible things. He sees little hope, and he's frustrated with this theodicy that somehow people deserve it. God responds ultimately with, be patient, I am working a new thing. And God doesn't say in that second interchange that I crush Israel on purpose. I crush Judah so that I may discipline them. But it's more out of this destruction, I will bring something new. And it begins to separate the action of God doing the crushing into the crushing happens in this world. And even though the crushing of our hopes, our dreams, our society, our very lives, even though those things happen, God says, I'm still there. Live by faith. And an important line back to chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. To trust that even though, again, that's chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Even though we can't see hope, even though it looks like only the bad succeed, only the evil make it. God says, no, that's not true. But be patient, wait for it. Again, there's a sense of not remnant focus here as in Sephaniah, but in the fact that in the deepest, darkest valley, I'm going to be present and I'm going to light a candle. Hence, we reenact that um, all the time when we light candles in a dark room. So here's the end of the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and no fruit is on the vines. It's poetry. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and there's no fruit on the vines. That's symbolic of our life, of people in difficult situation. There's no fruit on the vine. No blossom. And we continue. Though the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold, 
and there is no herd in the stalls. Catastrophe. Verse 18, very important word, yet. Verse 18, the first word, yet, despite all this, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in God my, of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. It doesn't mention the word repent here, that all this destruction, all this sorrow surrounds. Typically, the other prophets would say, repent, and then God will bless you with good things. It's not what Habakkuk says. It doesn't talk about repentance here. It talks about sitting in the midst of catastrophe and still rejoicing in God, even though you can't understand why this catastrophe happened. We always want to know why. Why does this happen to me? Why does this happen to them? It's not fair. It's not fair. And Habakkuk comes up with a solution. We'll never figure out what's fair and what's not fair. What are you going to do then when you're left with this existential crisis, like the one following World War II, where senseless things happened? How do you make any sense of it at all? It's like Elie Wiesel the wonderful Jewish writer who was in concentration camp, who was standing in line with a group of other prisoners while a child was put in the gallows, and they all had to watch. And the man next to him says, Where's God now? Where's God? And Elie Wiesel says, God's right here. God's in the gallows with that child. And there's a sense that there is nothing then that can cause us to be crushed when that Spirit of God is present to us. There's no curse that can come upon us that can crush us. It is Habakkuk's way of totally challenging the Deuteronomist theology, and I love that. I love the way he challenges it. Verse 19 again, 18 and 19. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. There was a pastor who 20, 30 years ago now died of Lou Gehrig's disease. His name is Jerry Erickson. He was pastor of Light of the Cross up in Bothell. And he had this verse read at his funeral service, where it was all hopeless. ALS caused him and his life to have no blossoms and no fruit on the tree. It was all desolation. It claimed his physical, emotional, spiritual health. It almost crushed him. It killed him. But Despite that, he read, had this verse read. Despite all of that, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in God my Savior. To me, that's faith. That's why I believe. It doesn't connect my behavior with blessings or reward. It is an existential choice. In a world where we will all die, 
in a world where we are surrounded by the fears of infection and this virus that seems pandemic. In the midst of all that, what do you do? What do we do? Do we look for blame? Do we live in fear? Or do we let our feet be like the feet of a deer that makes us tread upon the heights? We're still alive. We're still God's people. And I choose to live in hope, not in despair. That's Habakkuk, a wonderful prophet of the Old Testament. So folks, here is Crossways um, by video. I hope it worked. Um, it's not the same as having you with us. I, I miss Nathan um, interrupting me every once in a while. Didn't have that today. Uh, missed your questions. It changes how I teach, depending on the questions you ask. Please help me understand if this at least worked to keep us going for a while, because I don't know how many more uh, Wednesdays we're going to miss. So if this works, if I get your thumbs up, we'll continue to do lessons like this to uh, keep us close to our schedule. So let's bow our heads in prayer, and uh, I'll let you be on with your day. Take care. Most Holy God, thank you for this time together, even though it is um, through the airwaves or <laughs> through the electrons that move through our cables. We thank you for that technology and that ability to communicate over distance. We thank you for these prophets, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and what they teach us and how they speak so eloquently to our own life and our own situations. We thank you for the blessings that they are. and We ask you to help us be inspired like Habakkuk or like Jerry Erickson, that in the midst of things we don't understand, in the midst of catastrophe, we don't seek to blame, we don't seek to explain, we simply seek to look for the good, look for your presence, look for friendship and hope and compassion and kindness that are always present in this world. And it is there that we will find our true sense of purpose and destiny. In your great and glorious presence, we pray. Amen. Blessings to you all. Take care.